0: Today's reading is from Mark 9. A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. You unbelieving generation, Jesus replied, How long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought him. help me overcome my unbelief. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: Today we continue one of our most um, uh, popular series that we do every year called My Most Important Question. The premise of the series is that too often churches ask us to check our doubts and our questions at the door. Uh, to leave our most important questions behind, but the reality is is that we all have deep uh, questions that we have wrestled with throughout life, uh, some of which we continue to wrestle with now. At Christ City Church, we believe that, we wrestle with our biggest, that when we wrestle with our biggest questions, it actually deepens our faith. Doubt isn't the enemy of faith, but rather it's its companion. All, one of the um, most beautiful lines in the Bible is in Mark 6. Uh, when the man says to Jesus, I do believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. And that captures the paradox of faith, that there are things that we know and that we cling to, and there are things that we don't yet know, and we may never know. And during um, this series, people in our own community at Christ City Church, they will be sharing how they have wrestled through the years with their own most important question. Sarah Bell, Evan Dame. Sarah is originally from Northern Virginia, but now lives in Northeast D.C. Sarah leads a small group. She's an elder at Christ City and embodies the role of neighborhood chaplain in the Rosedale neighborhood where she lives with her family. Evan comes from a family with deep roots in the North Brentwood, Maryland community, the first African-American incorporated town in Prince George's County. Evan is a self-described sneakerhead and walking encyclopedia of hip-hop culture. Let me pray for them as they come. God, we thank you for the ways that you have been faithful to us, and we thank you that you are a God uh, to whom we can bring our questions, that we can bring our doubts, and that you hold those, that you hear those, that you don't recoil from those. And so, God, as we listen to um, these friends of ours share their own questions, God, I pray that it may stir something in us um, and that that something would be our faith in a God who can hold and handle our questions. I pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.
2: Cultures and perspectives shape people, but they also transform. The closer you are to someone, the more you learn about where they've come from, what they're passionate about, and their hopes and dreams for the future. It takes listening and a willingness to be vulnerable. As an Enneagram nine, I would say that I prefer the first one of listening over the latter being vulnerable. The beginning of my story takes place in suburban Northern Virginia. Picture kids riding big wheels, rollerblading, climbing trees to read a book, searching the woods for critters, catching crayfish at the local creek without fear. These were my days as a young kid and being homeschooled from first grade through 12th. If I got my schoolwork done by lunch. The rest of my day was free to play and explore. I had several hours between finishing school and going to gymnastics practice. This, though, was not the reality of most of my friends and neighbors. Let's jump ahead now to 2015. This is when some of the most influential pieces of my journey of transformation and self-discovery truly began. I had told God before moving to D.C., anything, use me, my family, my time, my gifts for your glory. Hebrews 6, 18 through 20, which says, we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner Jesus has entered on our behalf. Growing up within the church, this was a life verse that I continued to cling to. Jesus truly was and is my anchor and hope in all circumstances. If you would have asked me in 2015 why I came to D.C., I would have said it was to be a part of an intentional church community that is also where I live. Once I moved to D.C. from Virginia and began settling in, I started doing those things that I was most comfortable with. Opening my home to kids in the neighborhood, serving in Kid City, tutoring for our classical homeschool group, and hosting guests. My block of 15th Street Northeast near Minor Elementary wasn't quiet, but it was full of life. People from all different walks of life living in close proximity to one another. The Holy Spirit began to put me in places that were going to stretch my thinking and what I thought I knew. I wasn't going to always fit in, but I knew how to listen. After all, that's the first stage of classical education in which I have lived and breathed the ins and outs of over the past 10 years as a homeschool mom after Emma started homeschooling when she was going into kindergarten. The grammar stage, learning, listening, memorizing, and gathering as much as you can on a certain subject or various subjects. By January of 2016, Mike and I were going through DC-127 host home training and had our first placement by March. African-American hair care, skin care, processing a new environment with a child that we've just met and juggling a student in a DCPS school showed me how little I actually thought I knew as a parent. Asking lots of questions, watching and listening remained key to this new calling and process of love for those who came from different walks of life than me. My children were watching and processing all at the same time. So what did I need? Tools, resources, knowledge to build upon all that I was learning. Attending trauma-informed care training, allyship training through Service Never Sleep, sleeps really opened my eyes and gave me practical ways of how to love and care for families who've been marginalized or stuck in broken systems of inequality. I had a responsibility to advocate on behalf of these groups. Gathering was through books, The Art of Neighboring, Rescuing Jesus, Addiction Nation, Church Forsaken, and Love Does were all full of stories of how the church had oppressed or dismissed certain people, groups, and my heart was hurting. But throughout those stories, people had also stepped in to advocate on their behalf just like Jesus did. Lives were literally being saved because they were being seen for who they were. I was spurred on to seek the justice and prosperity of my city and the very place that I was living. Missy Alliance conferences challenged and inspired me to reimagine church. I witnessed the power of women's voices being elevated and given equal space at the pulpit. This was a new thing for me. A veteran on the verge of homelessness moved in with us. His story of perseverance, hard work, and overcoming adversity were as inspirational. I even learned that veterans have limited care and difficulty accessing resources. Building relationships with friends who are LGBTQ showed me Jesus in a new and fresh way. I then had the privilege to also live close and be welcomed in a community where some have lived 30 plus years and they showed me the power of time and dedication. Transformation to people and place shaped them and their stories. Not just knowing the history of the city and country that I live in, but my neighborhood, street, and the people who have invested in it. My house is on the very spot where Mr. Roots, my neighbor, grew his vegetables in the community garden. He demonstrates hard work and invites everyone, even my kids, to take part in caring for the neighborhood. Ms. Sandra, a local ANC rep, and also a friend to the CCC community, had to arrange her furniture so that if bullets came flying through her living room, no one would get hit by sitting on the couch, but not so today. Her civic engagement, such as advocating and changing the urban garden law to include hydroponics so that the neighborhood could have a community garden for all residents, And her passion for people flourishing in Rosedale inspired me. It truly takes a village to come together for the betterment of a community. The next story is about a single mother who grew up in foster care and battled a lifelong disease. She did what every loving mother would do, reached out for help so that her child wouldn't enter the system like her. She needed help and support and bravely trusted her child into my home. I never imagined the things that I would take part in, be taught, shown, or experienced. Rapid rehousing processes, social security payment battles, abuse, and unexpected health complications that could come out of nowhere and affected steady employment. She has a heart of gold. She's intelligent and perseveres even in the midst of averaging needs. Together, while she was giving birth to her second child, I witnessed birth injustice, limited care, and a lack of empathy toward a single mother and her child while in the hospital. But I was given the opportunity to advocate and fought for proper care. As a married white woman with insurance coverage, I had never experienced this and was mortified. Now I was moving out of the grammar stage of gathering knowledge and into the second stage, which is known as the dialectic stage within classical education. I was starting to understand and apply what I was learning because I have a responsibility to those close to me, even if they look different or do things differently than me. Having close friends to navigate the city has kept me present and grounded. Small group friends, dinner guests, neighbors, reading and hearing scripture from other angles, and even local politics have shaped my point of view over the past five years. Here I am, just a mom, homeschooling my four children, and all I thought I knew and believed and was taught in my Christian home growing up for the past 30 plus years was being challenged. While helping my middle schooler two years ago learn how to critically think, debate well, and seek truth when studying current events, my education was being redeemed. It can be isolating at times, but it is so rewarding because I've had a community who supported me. Homeschoolers tend to flock together at the same churches, but not mine. My homeschooling community and church neighborhood have felt divided. I'm challenged in both, but separately. From my youngest days, people have been valued and appreciated. And gratitude was something that my family modeled, no matter what. And that brings me to Ephesians 2.10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Friends, you are God's workmanship, created for a unique purpose. All the people that I have mentioned in their stories, they are God's workmanship, image bearers of Jesus designed for a purpose with gifts that all humanity can benefit from. Jesus came to break down walls that divide and to instead unify. Over the past five years, four of which have been spent as a host home for DC 127, my faith in Christ within the church community and the wider outside the church community has been renewed. Hope has been made secure, passions elevated by these experiences and stories. I've witnessed firsthand the power of the church uniting around families to keep them together. Foster care numbers are going down. Children are thriving and parents feel supported because they have a team committed to seeing them succeed in one of the hardest jobs ever, parenting. The story of the single mother, that one has forever shaped my heart and guided my thoughts, actions, neighborhood engagement with other single parents, and a desire to see equity, support, inclusivity, and respective care to help moms and children combating health disparities. I also have a health education background. No mother should have to deliver a baby alone or receive lesser care due to socioeconomic status, ethnicity, or citizenship. Local organizations like Mama Toto's Village are having this impact and it fills my heart with joy and I want to be a part of it. It's a sign of life in God's kingdom here in DC. As I mentioned earlier, if you would have asked me in 2015 why I came to DC, I would have said it was to be a part of an intentional church community that's also planted where I live. Now I will tell you, it's because I'm called to seek justice, love mercy walk humbly with my God so that all can flourish and God's kingdom can continue to grow here in DC. This is the beginning of my perspectives being transformed, moving into the rhetorical stage, the third and final stage in classical education, where wisdom has been gained to know how to teach all that's been learned and come to understand. I will continue to classically homeschool my children and be a lead learner to them. Clean, listen, and serve alongside those in close proximity to me to inspire me to go against social norms just like Jesus did. I may even become a prenatal healthcare worker or pro bono doula because listening has transformed my perspectives.
3: Good morning, Christ City. My most important question is, God, what good are you? Most of the time when people ask what good are you is out of a place of frustration and disappointment because they've requested someone do something countless times and that person hasn't done it and so they ask exasperatingly what good are you this is the very same reason i asked god this question i have prayed and pleaded to him to help me to heal me to save me and he did not and so i asked exasperatingly god what good are you Now, to give you a bit of background information about myself, I was born and raised in a small community called North Brentwood in Prince George's County, Maryland, right on the outskirts of Northeast D.C. I was reared by an amazing, wonderful and intelligent single mother who I thank God for every single day. A very significant and profound part of my life, though, has been kidney disease, which although I was born with, I was not diagnosed until seven. Throughout my entire life, I was always told by doctors that my kidneys would eventually fail and I'd end up on dialysis. However, I never listened to my doctors because I was also always told that God had the final verdict on all things and that if I believed firmly enough and prayed hard enough, he'd free me and heal me from this disease. Everything came to a head May 2011. It was the Wednesday before Memorial Day weekend that year. The day started off like any other day before it in that my alarm went off to wake me up for work in the morning. From standing on the corners bopping and driving some of the hottest cars New Yorkers ever seen to dropping some of the hottest verses rappers ever heard from the dope spot with a smoke glide fleeing the murder scene. You know me well from nightmares of a lonely cell. My only hell played repeatedly. Minute after minute, after minute. But that day, I did not wake up. My mother in the next room over, hearing Jay-Z's hard-knock life play nonstop, grows concern. She comes out of her room, knocks on my door, calls my name, and receives no response. She then proceeds to enter my room, only to find me sprawled across the bed, unresponsive, unconscious, and not Breathing. She shakes me, calls my name again, still I don't respond. Then, as any Christian mother would, she calls on the Lord to wake her son up, to save her son, yet I still don't respond. She frantically dials 911. The dispatcher asks her, what's the emergency? My mother tells her the situation. The dispatcher then instructs her to lift me off the bed and place me flat on the floor. I'm 300 pounds. My mother is unable to do this. The dispatcher then tells her to tilt my head back as far as it can go and tell her what happens. My mother does this and I begin responding. I begin moving and more importantly, I begin breathing. The paramedics arrive a few minutes later, hook me up to all kinds of IVs and all manner of medical accoutrements, place me in the ambulance and haul me away to Prince George's Hospital. I am placed in ICU in a medically induced coma for four days. Hard to believe that was me. I improved day by day, and after regaining enough of my mental faculties, doctors tell me, Mr. Dane, sorry, but your kidneys have failed completely, and you will be on dialysis for the foreseeable future. After learning this, all kinds of thoughts run through my head, but one thought sticks out in particular because it was especially absurd. I started to wonder what happened to the pajama pants I had on the last time I went to bed. They were Marvel pajama pants. They had Captain America, Hulk, Spider-Man, Iron Man climbing up the pant legs, and I really, really liked these pants. I turned to my mother. Mom, what happened to my pajama pants? She said, well, son, they had to cut them off of you to save your life. Once I learned what happened to my pajama pants, oddly enough, the gravity of my situation settled on me like like a boulder. I started to process this new information that I'd be on dialysis for the rest of my life. At least that's what it felt like at the time. Even though I prayed this wouldn't happen, God, what good are you? For those who are not familiar with dialysis, it is an exhausting process. What happens is your blood is removed from your body, filtered through a machine, and then returned to your body cleaned. This has to be done because your kidneys are no longer capable of filtering out toxins. So this machine has to do it for you, acting like a sort of life support. This could be done in one of several ways. A port in your chest, which I've had. A port in your neck, which I've had. Even a port in your groin, which I've had. Also something called a graft which is a large synthetic vein implanted in your arm, which dialysis technicians and nurses use to access the blood in your body. One large needle is stuck in one part of the graft, another large needle is stuck in a second part of the graft. The first needle pulls the blood out, runs it through the machine, and the second needle returns it to your body. I went through this for five and a half years, three days a week, four hours per treatment. Now, when I was approaching the four and a half year mark, my doctor comes to me during treatment and asks, Hey, Mr. Dane, just saying how you're doing and how long have you been on dialysis? I said, well, about four and a half years, doc. He responds, well, you're approaching five years and that's when it's time to grow concerned because your quality of life starts to decrease significantly and your risk for heart disease and even death increases. You're young. We don't want any of that for you. So please look into getting a transplant. At that time, I didn't really care whether or not I lived or died. I just was tired of the suffering. I told this to one of my best friends, and he said, Evan, I understand you're tired of suffering. I even understand you're tired of living. But understand this, I am not tired of you living. Your friends, family, and coworkers aren't tired of you living. Your mother isn't tired of you living. So please, please, before you give up, think about All of us. This resonated with me. So I looked into getting a transplant. I contacted George Washington University Hospital and made an appointment for consultation. When I arrived at the consultation, one of the first things they tell me is that I am unable to be evaluated for a transplant because I'm too obese. I was 350 pounds at the time. So while I wasn't surprised, I was still discouraged. However, I still remember what my friend said, and I dieted, and I exercised, and lost 70 pounds over the next six months. June 2016 comes around. George Washington University Hospital calls to check in. Hey, Mr. Dame, just seeing how things are coming along and how you're doing with your weight loss. I say it's coming along okay, doc. I've lost a lot of weight, but I'm not quite where I need to be. I tell him I'm at 280. I need to be at 270. They say that's good enough and surprisingly say I can come in for an evaluation. So I go to my evaluation, they run a battery of tests, and after that is over, I'm officially listed on the kidney donor waiting list. Again, this is June 2016, and I pray to God to have a kidney by February 23rd, 2017, which is my birthday. Six months go by, and on December 7th, 2016, I receive a call around 8 a.m. from GW Hospital saying there's a potential donor for me, but I'm still second in line. There's someone ahead of me, but if that person doesn't work out, the kidney could be mine. I say, okay, thanks for calling. I go on about my day as usual, not thinking much about the call because the second person in line never gets the kidney. I receive a call at 1130 that night in this GW hospital to let me know that I've gotten the kidney. After confirming I wasn't dreaming, I jumped for joy, and I do thank God. I wake my mother up, and we head to the hospital in our pajamas, no less. We make it in record time, and on December 8, 2016, I'm officially transplanted. The surgery goes well, and I thank God every day for this blessing. But to borrow from Langston Hughes, kidney transplantation, at least for me, ain't been no crystal stair. And there's still times here and there when I ask God, "What good are you? However, with that said, it is the reason I am here today and it has made me a better person than I've ever been. So while sometimes I am not happy about the trials I've been through, I'm grateful for the person they've turned me into. Ruminating on that thought, I decided I was just going to stop asking God, what good are you, and instead ask, what good am I? I know it may seem counterproductive to answer an MMIQ with another question, but I find focusing on the good I've done as a result of my experience with kidney disease is the best way to resolve the resentment I have toward God. In recent years, I've become a guide and inspiration to others on the same journey. I've become a leader in my community, and church. I've lost 150 pounds and am in the best shape of my life. I've developed friendships and relationships in ways I never imagined. And I even found the love of my life hijack, none of which would have happened had it not been for the suffering I've endured. Speaking of suffering, the hardest part of this MMIQ was finding a Bible verse to include that would encapsulate and embody what I'm trying to say. See, I did not look to the Bible for comfort during this entire ordeal. I even looked to other belief systems from agnosticism to Zionism. I found some comfort in my hip-hop music, especially rappers like DMX who said to live is to suffer, but to survive, well, that's to find meaning in the suffering. I even went to God rapping poetry, like, God, you know it's me. I just don't understand what you're showing me. Just tell your man what I'm supposed to see. What about the son of man? You don't give a damn, nor to he, and if there's one man on this planet, you owe, it's me. That provided a little comfort, but at least I got my anger out. To resolve this dilemma, I went on Google to search verses about suffering. The very first verse to appear was 1 first, first Peter 5.10, which says, and the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. And when I found this verse, I realized that despite my resentment for God, and regardless that I still ask him at times, God, would could you? My suffering was not in vain. And as a result of it, I stand here strong, firm, and steadfast. Thank you, Christ City.
1: It's right for us at the end of those stories and at the end of these treasures that have been given to us for us to come together. And to remember the one who can hold all of our questions, who can hold all of our doubts, all of our pain, um, that can hold all of us, uh, for us to come to the table and to remember the body and blood of Christ broken and shed for us. Lord, we thank you for these gifts that you've given us. Gifts of um, these friends and their stories, the ways that we can see your hand of care and comfort and protection and resilience woven through all of it god i pray that um, that we would hold those just as you do that we would reflect on those that we would identify with those stories and come to a place of remembering that you are a god that can hold all of it in christ's name amen
0: thank you for being with us for joining us for bearing with us in all things um we're grateful for the words that we 've heard, the stories we 've heard, the words that we 've sung and said, and the truths that we 've affirmed, the questions that we 've asked and, and and sat with all of that is part of our faith all of that is part of what it means to to walk with christ uh, so let me close with um with this from uh from Romans eight <clears throat> We know that the whole creation is groaning together and suffering labor pains up until now. And it's not only the creation, we ourselves, who have the Spirit as the first crop of the harvest, also grown inside as we wait to be adopted and for our bodies to be set free. We were saved in hope. If we see what we hope for, that isn't hope. Who hopes for what they already see? But if we hope for what we don't see, We wait for it with patience. In the same way, the Spirit comes to help our weakness. We don't know what we should pray, but the Spirit pleads our case with unexpressed groans. The one who searches hearts knows how the Spirit thinks because he pleads for the saints consistent with God's will. We know that God works all things together for good for the ones who love God, for those who are called according to His purpose. We know this because God knew them in advance. And he decided in advance that they would be conformed to the image of his son. And that way his son would be the first of many brothers and sisters. Those who God decided in advance would be conformed to his son he also called and those whom he called he also made righteous and those whom he made righteous he also glorified. So what are we going to say about these things? If God is for us who is against us who will separate us from Christ's love Will we be separated by trouble, or distress, or harassment, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? No, in all these things, we win a sweeping victory through the One who loved us. Paul writes, I'm convinced that nothing can separate us from God's love in Christ Jesus our Lord, not death or life, not angels or rulers, not present things or future things, not powers or height or depth or any other thing that is created. God bless you, friends. May you go with God this week. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.